As protests over the shooting in Kenosha raged into the week after Jacob Blake's shooting, the situation became increasingly volatile, and the police response increasingly heavy. Tensions were high. The following excerpt from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel describes it well. A massive line of police and riot gear had just forced Jeremiah and hundreds of other protesters out of Kenosha's Civic Center Park and into the street. After that, there was nowhere to go. Soldiers and cops blocked one end of the road. White guys with big guns blocked the other. It was past 11 p.m. Tuesday, the third night of protests after a Kenosha police officer shot Jacob Blake seven times in the back. Jeremiah had received a text from a friend saying a bunch of protesters had their tires slashed. He wanted to get to his car before vandals did. He decided the quickest path was to cut through a parking lot. As he made his way toward it, Jeremiah saw more armed white men. Two crouched on the roof of a building, sniper style. Two or three others stood guard over the lot. One of them, a baby face with a backward ball cap, raised an assault rifle and pointed it at him. Early in the evening, before he became stranded in the search for his car, Jeremiah got into an argument with one of them. Jeremiah was talking to a reporter when an angry woman interrupted, telling him she was tired of people like him burning things down. As he argued he'd done no such thing, an armed man came up and shoved him. Be ready, Jeremiah recalls the man saying. If you come toward us, we're going to open fire. This was the third night of protests against the shooting of Jacob Blake, and the police presence on this night was different from the last two. Previously, protesters had been allowed to linger for a bit in the park they'd used as a staging ground. This time, hundreds more cops compared to the previous two days were present at the park and forced them out, including with armored vehicles. Things exploded into outright violence a short time later when an armed vigilante, Kyle Rittenhouse, shot and killed two protesters, the first of whom had tried to disarm Rittenhouse after he kept pointing his gun at them and injured a third. Quoting again from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Gage Grosskreutz was the man shot in the arm. With no medics available to respond to his shouts for help, Grosskreutz supervised his own first aid, instructing a man who'd been live-streaming the shooting on how to apply a tourniquet. Grosskreutz was wearing a hat and backpack that identified him as a medic when he rushed toward Huber, according to a close friend who didn't want her name used. And yes, he had a gun because we're allowed to protect ourselves, but the gun was down, not pointed, she said. As the SUV-carrying slain protester Joseph Rosenbaum sped across the parking lot to Freighter Hospital's back door, street medic Mara McKenzie's medic partner Gage Grosskreutz told her the shooter was still in the area. The two medics crouched behind a brick hospital sign, hoping it would be enough to protect them if he opened fire again. Her fellow medic didn't tell her until later that he'd seen the gunman run past them, fewer than ten yards away. Jeremiah, the protester whose account we opened this segment with, saw the shooter flee, too, and he could tell the teen was scared. He knew he messed up, Jeremiah said. He panicked. Even his people knew what he did was wrong. They were all shouting at him, What are you doing? What are you doing? I saw it in their faces. I saw it in their body language. The violence in Kenosha resulted in two people being killed by a vigilante along with another injured, and Jacob Blake being paralyzed by the police. There is also millions of dollars in property damage, concentrated in particular in poorer parts of town. I think there were broadly two responses to the violence and rioting you saw in Kenosha. 
And yes, I'm being a bit simplistic here. You had one side focus on Rittenhouse killing people and the cops shooting Blake in the back. And the other side, you had a fixation on property damage from rioting and viewing what Rittenhouse did as justified, even heroic. And honestly, I think one of the most disturbing developments from events there was this sort of lionization by Rittenhouse um, by some people on the right. I really do think that that is disturbing because I don't think, you know, they view what he did as like some sort of awful necessity, which is, you know, that in and of itself is debatable, right? I mean, he's been charged with murder, but, you know, I don't think it was like, oh, well, you know, it was an awful necessity, but he was defending himself. But it's rather like, isn't it awesome that he killed protesters? That's great, right? I mean, you know, just to give one uh, anecdote here. I uh, remember in my hometown county, right, the Republican Party there, the Waukesha County Republicans, they had Rittenhouse's mother as a guest. And when she came in, like, a bunch of people stood up and started clapping, that I, I just you know I'm I'm very uncomfortable with this, and I just also want to say, you know, not not to say not to say that oh I've suffered so much here too, but it's really quite fascinating when when you mentioned Rittenhouse on social media, like on Twitter as the example I'm using here, there are people who name search him to defend him. Like you will get people in your mentions if you talk about Kyle Rittenhouse and you don't like censor out his name or anything. And they'll, you know, it's just, they're so nasty. And, and so like, you know, <laughs> it's just one of those things where, you know, maybe if you're uh, tweeting about it, be careful. Uh, so I, I think, you know, my own take on the situation is that he came with this vigilante mindset to a community he did not live in. He's from Illinois. Um, he armed with a weapon he should not have been using to start trouble. And while I don't think he necessarily wanted to kill people, that's what he ended up doing. Right. And I do think, you know, he may have been primed to do it to a degree. Right. I mean, from everything we know about him, he was a very strong supporter of the police. He posted blue lives matter stuff on a social media. Some of his classmates recounted a kid who was very much in love with guns, the police and Donald Trump. Yikes. So I don't know, you know, didn't really have perhaps the most favorable view of people protesting um, against uh, police killings and police violence uh, toward black people. You know, the, I mean, when you read accounts of Rittenhouse, like you were reading Emerson, one thing that stands out is he was pointing his gun constantly at people. Mm -hmm. Like you don't do that if you're being totally self-defensive, right? You know, you don't do that. That's a provocation to point a gun at someone. That is telling that other person that you are not a safe person to be around, that you actually are very willing to cavalierly point a weapon, a deadly weapon at another person. So there's, you know, I don't, I don't buy the fact that, oh, yeah, no, he was so innocent. It's like, no, I think he was trying to start trouble, and then he bit off more than he could chew. Yeah. And now he faces a murder rap. Um, so. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Uh, do you have, I know, I know you just have been reading intense passage after intense passage. Do you perhaps <laughs> have any reflections, thoughts, perspectives on how you feel about all of this events in Kenosha that summer more broadly? I mean, honestly, I think I've been <laughs> not thinking about it lately. I mean, just uh, with all the, all the other life events and world events. Um, 
it kind of, you know, trying not to think about it all the time. But when, when I do, you know, think about it, like when we're talking about it today, I think it just feels kind of surreal that it's Wisconsin. Um, it hits close to home. Yeah. Yeah. It I think that's it fair to feel, say. It, it doesn't feel like uh, reality because it's it's hard to come to terms with that. Yeah. No, I think that's something a lot of people feel, particularly when it happens in their community. I, I do think that probably, you know, it's how a lot of people in Kenosha felt, right? Just like the sense of shock that it could happen there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I do think that something to internalize with events such as this is that it can happen anywhere. There might be some places where it's perhaps more likely to happen, but I don't. I think that can also be a way for us to compartmentalize and say, "Oh, well, those things happen in those places, but not in these places." You, you know, it yeah, can be yeah. a way of sort of othering those places and making yeah. them seem somehow radically different. And I'm just, I, I think that's hmm, how how do I put this in a way that's not cavalier? I, I think that's just a, a sort of coping mechanism more than anything else. That you know, what happens in one place, well. Oh, if it happens in Minneapolis, whatever, it's Minneapolis. It happens in Milwaukee, whatever, it's it's Milwaukee. It happens in Detroit, et cetera. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I think the broader point is that these issues exist everywhere in the United States. Yeah, right? we don't I, the... we don't want to be constantly on guard. That I mean, yeah, like you said, like that's just not how we're built. Like we're <laughs> you know, a lot of us don't want That's true. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that is true, that it can be that kind of way to sort of process it but i i guess my point yeah i know i see what you're saying you're saying like in a psychological way right like elaborating on when you said it's a coping and a comfort yes exactly exactly i i do agree with you there so i think then we can now segue more back to the election broadly um, because we've talked so much about how kenosha has been used as electoral fodder Um, And, you know, Trump saw it as an opportunity because it was electoral fodder in a state he desperately needed to beat Joe Biden in in order to remain president. Now, we were going to include a clip um, from a Trump rally that he did in Kenosha on November 2nd, the day before the presidential election. Um, But our MP3 converter doesn't like files that are over an hour long. So I'm just going to give you my best a rundown of what Trump said. He says this. When the violent mob came to Kenosha, Biden opposed sending in the National Guard. Of course, you remember this, right? He didn't. He didn't want to send in the Guard. He thought it was terrible to send in the Guard. And we sent in the Guard, and we saved Kenosha. We saved Kenosha. I said, you know, I think Kenosha's going to like me. We did a good job. Now, of course, um, that isn't true. Uh, Biden did support sending in the National Guard, but Trump lying, you know, who to thunk? So the question is, did it work? Well, in a broad sense, the answer is clearly no. Trump still lost Wisconsin by about 21,000 votes to Biden, although that was a narrow margin that had been originally expected, both according to public polls and both campaigns' internal data. But in a narrower sense, The answer has to be yes. According to data from economist magazine analyst G. Elliott Morris, controlling for all other variables, including race, income, and education, Trump was helped by the rioting and violence in Kenosha. 
since Trump did better in demographically identical precincts in Kenosha than ones in Milwaukee. Consider the following data. In 2016, Hillary Clinton lost Wisconsin by about one point, but won the city of Kenosha by 55 to 38, a 17-point margin. In 2020, Joe Biden won Wisconsin by about one point, but won Kenosha by a lessened margin of 56 to 42. Still a clear victory, but also an obvious shift toward Trump. Kenosha County as a whole was won by Trump by only about 0.3% in 2016, but by about three points in 2020, despite Wisconsin's overall Democratic shift. Kenosha tends to be a bellwether county in Wisconsin. Whoever wins it is often winning statewide. But because of this pro-Trump shift, that was not true in 2020. Fascinating. So I think this data, and yeah, it is really interesting. Um, but I also think that hearing this data can be kind of frustrating for some lefties to hear because they, I think first and foremost, they want to believe that somehow rioting will backfire on guys like Trump. And second of all, I think there is this defensiveness almost when you bring up the fact that rioting can have bad consequences like empowering right-wing demagogues like trump right because it's like oh well you're saying you know you're criticizing rioting and therefore you're criticizing the grievances that lead to rioting and it's like no i'm not see i i'm with martin luther king jr on this one and that full quote that we referred to earlier um that is the voice of the unheard yeah that a riot is the language of the unheard um he goes on to say is that while I condemn riots, I also must condemn equally the conditions that lead to riots. And that's basically my view. Um, you know, I, I view rioting as a political tactic, as a sort of last resort. I mean, look at Stonewall, for example, in the late 60s about how drag queens and other patrons of a gay bar uh, rebelled against the police because they had been left with no other options. Right. And I think, you know, that's something that doesn't often get emphasized, that rioting is a tactic of the desperate. Right. Like, I think, you know, some more militant lefties sort of romanticize it with riot porn and all that. And I'm just like, no, like people riot because they're tired, because they're angry. And like, sure, are there people out there who just want to start shit, who just want to start trouble? Yeah. But I'm just saying, like, you know, you got to you got to understand the broader structural factors that lead to riots. And we also have to understand that they do hurt communities, that they do cause lots of economic damage and, and a psychological damage in a sense, right? I mm -hmm. mean, you know, these riots often hit poor communities the hardest. So that's yet just another hardship for these places to deal with. So, you know, I, I think that, yes, there is a dynamic, particularly on the right, where the riots get more coverage than the loss of human life and that the property damage is, oh my God, they burned down a, or they, they, they looted a target. Oh no, they looted a target. But you know, it's like, okay, but what about the black man who's dead? You know, I do understand that, that, you know, there's frustration at that type of framing of rioting, which I, I agree with that, you know, like ultimately a riot can be, can be bad. But, you know, it's not as bad as black people being murdered with impunity by the police, as we saw in in uh, Minneapolis. Yeah. Right. <clears throat> so and it just you know, so happens that, unfortunately, the rioting in as in seen in Kenosha can give fuel to the right wing talking yes. points. Yes. 
And it did help. And I, I think, you know, the coverage of the riots in Kenosha definitely, definitely uh, helped Trump. Like, it's just, to- it's just clear from the data, right, that Joe Biden should have improved on Hillary Clinton's performance in Kenosha, and mm-hmm. he didn't because Trump was able to make some gains there as a result of that. You know, um, G. Elliot Morris, the analyst who who showed this pretty demonstrably that the rioting helped Trump in Kenosha and its surrounding area, um, he had a thought that I think was fairly astute. He basically said that, you know, when you have such extensive rioting and then heavy coverage of said rioting and the aftermath of it, I think the party that is seen as trying to make changes to policing as the Democrats um, are not the not you know not the radical changes somewhat, and certainly most Democrats do not support defunding the police. But nonetheless, they are trying to make changes, reform the police, um, impose stricter consequences for excessive use of force, and all of that. Right. So you know, in a scenario like that, where maybe people are more inclined to take the side of the police, the party seeking changes to policing thus gets hurt electorally. I think I would agree with that analysis. Um, so that that would be my own thought on it. Uh, but I did think I wanted to, to mention that. But also let's add some let's add some qualifiers here because what happened in Kenosha does not necessarily uh, speak for what happened everywhere else, right? Um, <clears throat> There were other places that experienced rioting and a lot of other unrest related to protests that did not show pro-Trump shifts, but rather pro-Biden shifts. Uh, Minneapolis and Portland are both examples. So this isn't a universalized thing. You know, I mean, for example, Trump bet his attempt to flip Minnesota in large measure on talking about the rioting after Floyd's murder. And he lost the state of Minnesota by some 230,000 votes, about seven points. So he lost it by a vote margin about 10 times greater than he lost Wisconsin. Um, Hennepin County, which is where Minneapolis and the surrounding suburbs are located, gave Biden more net votes in Minnesota than the 70-something Trump won counties in Minnesota gave Trump. And keep in mind, Hennepin was not the only county Biden won in Minnesota, so everything else was gravy. So, you know, he got over 200,000 net votes compared to Trump, hence the state not being terribly close. Oh, so that didn't work out too good for Trump, did it? Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No. No, it didn't. <laughs> Look, I, uh, I know you wanted to close out the podcast with the perspectives of people affected by the events in Kenosha, so... Um, if you want to do that now, we can. Yeah, I definitely do. Um, I also just want to make a bit of a plug here. Um, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, um, co- their coverage of this was instrumental to making this podcast possible. I mean, just their, just how well they did it, how scrupulous they were with their sourcing, how they made sure to keep uh, sources safe, the people who gave them some of these um, accounts because there were like actual death threats coming in, threats to people's lives, right? They were very ethical, professional. Like this is like that this is journalism at its best. And and so, you know, I cannot recommend that if you want to keep up with current events in Wisconsin both related to the events in Kenosha and beyond, get a subscription to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. It's about 11-12 a month and it's worth every penny. Like I, I, this podcast would just not be nearly as good if, if I couldn't use them. 
Um, You know, they had a series on Kenosha one year on, uh, focusing on those most impacted by the shooting of Jacob Blake and its aftermath that we are now going to reference a bit here. Uh, Emerson, you can take it away. Uh, Justin Blake is the uncle of Jacob Blake and has been a leading advocate for justice for his nephew. Reflecting on how he was arrested and restrained in a chair for seven hours, save bathroom breaks, by Kenosha County Police when protesting in front of the public safety building, Justin notes, There's something really deeply embedded in the hierarchy of government, judicial, policing, that it stinks to high heaven. And when asked by the Journal Sentinel how he feels about the past year, he answers, Challenging. Exhausting. Prayerful. Surreal. Continuing in this excerpt from the Journal Sentinel, his nephew, though in pain and undergoing grueling physical therapy, is alive. For that, he is thankful. On his birthday, they could visit, eat jerk chicken and pizza, play cards and dominoes, something the families of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor cannot ever do again. Their family will press on. Joined by supporters in Kenosha and beyond, Justin Blake said, they still want the officer charged and fired. They want an outside investigation into the entire police department and district attorney's office. And they pray for a miracle that little Jake will walk again. Thank you very much, Emerson. Of course. Um, So, diverging just a bit, but continuing with this broader theme of reflections, uh, I also want to cite here a New York Times piece uh, that focuses on the impact of the rioting and violence of Kenosha uh, a year on. Uh, in particular, focusing on the neighborhood of Uptown in Kenosha, uh, a heavily Latino and black neighborhood. Um, And I feel as if this pastor for that neighborhood um, really captured the sentiment best, and I will now quote from his words here. We're all living in trauma, but when I see the fear that was on the faces and on the minds of the white citizens, it reminded me of one thing it's that you endured maybe one week of this and you understood what that did to the body everything reacted to that and it was so hard but look from my viewpoint i've had generation after generation of this trauma because i'm african-american so this has been i think a heavier podcast i i did a lot of research on this because I think it is important to get these things right and to remember the people most affected uh, because these scars that are caused by events like these, by violence like this, um, they, they are left long after something like an election cycle ends. You know, politics can feel so fleeting, so ephemeral, but the accumulated trauma and hardship of things such as this, you know, they they linger long after the news cycle has moved on. That Jacob Blake, you know, he's paralyzed, he's alive, but he's paralyzed. He was shot seven times in the back in front of, of his kids. Right, And those three boys, they now have to live with that. They will have to cope with that for, for years, for the rest of their lives. And, you know, 
I, I think in politics, it can be easy to abstract things away that when we have these shorthands of when we refer to things like, oh, you know, George Floyd in Minneapolis, oh, Kenosha, oh, Charlottesville over four years ago now, you know, we should never forget that there are real people who are affected by these things. You know, I'd like to close um, with, a, with an anecdote I had uh, when I was phone banking uh, for the Wisconsin Dems last uh, last September. And I remember this guy, his name was Nicholas. And this guy, you know, he was very opinionated. I, uh, I still have some notes from my conversation with him. When I phone bank, I'll sometimes make note of particularly interesting conversations. And, um, you know, he just had so much to say. And then, you know, about halfway through the conversation, he's like, you know, I live in Kenosha. You know, so I really care about what happens to my community and you know electing good people here that can that can be can be leaders right and you know it was a really good conversation it really gave a boost to my morale he was very kind to me you know very appreciative of the work i was doing but i think it also just is one of those very staunch reminders or perhaps you know one of those things that really just reminds you that most of us just want better lives for ourselves and our children, right? That we want to live in peaceful, safe communities. We want to have opportunities in life to pursue what we want to do, right? And, and for so many people, especially for black people, right? They just haven't, they've been denied that. They've been denied that. And that is something I think that white people truly need to un not only understand and internalize, but in a broader sense, see as their own problem. That because black Americans cannot get ahead, that is actually your problem, right? It's not just a thing for you to empathize with, it's a problem for you to address, right? And I think once, once you do that, you begin to truly start on the idea of dismantling systemic racism in a meaningful way because we talk so much about systems and structures on the left, but ultimately it's individuals who have to make the decision on what to do about those systems and structures. So I, uh, I think that is the uh, meditation I would like to close my own, uh, my own opining on so if you have anything you want to say emerson feel free um, i think you said it very well i think i'm gonna leave it with that next time on the great purple state we close out our b Four. part mini series <laughs> just kidding um yeah all right next time on the great purple state we close out our four part mini series about the 2020 presidential election in Wisconsin with the episode finale. Awesome possum. Thank you all so much for listening and processing this with us. And thank you, Connell, once again for the volumes of research that you do for this podcast. It uh, helps me a lot and I, I know it helps some of our listeners out. So, yes. Thank you. Is that a, is, is that a wrap? That is a wrap. All right. How many, how many?